Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, the Overdose Murder of Bobby Jean Blacka miniseries, episode two of four. Well, now that we've heard episode one, why don't you tell us what we can expect as we dive into episode two? Exactly. Episode one was very educational. It was talked about the case, but it also went into a, a little bit of detail about addiction and treatment things. Episode two is going to go ahead and take the listener straight into the case it started, how it started, what the first investigative efforts were, and some of the initial interviews and things like that. And we're going to learn a lot, too, that Bobby comes from a smaller market or smaller department where they don't have specialized units like bigger departments do. What that means is those officers, like thousands of officers across the United States, put on several hats and they do everything from start to finish. And I think people will find that very interesting in episode two. Okay, well, let's dig into episode two and see where that takes us with Officer Bobby McCone. So, Bobby, referencing back to May 8th, 2014, our victim, Bobby Jean Blacka, age 38, why don't you tell us about when that call came out, how you were assigned that call, or what happened that led you to Bobby Jean? Okay, absolutely. So, again, being a day shift officer, my shift started at 7 o'clock in the morning. We worked 12-hour shifts, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Kind of explain a little bit about the dynamic with West Virginia law enforcement. Because we are buried in the mountain and we have tons of small little towns and small communities, the city that I had jurisdiction over was only approximately 4,000, 5,000 residents. The whole entire county was only 35,000 people. So we're talking very small areas. 55 counties make up the state of West Virginia. In my county, I may have only had one deputy, one state trooper, and myself on duty for the whole entire county. And to go across one side of the county to the other, you're looking at a 45-minute hour-long drive to make it from one end of the county to the other. If I'm involved in a fight with a suspect or I have something where I need immediate help, I may call dispatch and say, get me another unit, and they're going to tell me, your closest deputy's en route, he'll be there in 40 minutes. You know, So your backup was not readily available. That being said, our agency was only made up of 12 officers. And we did not have specialized units. We did not have a homicide unit, a narcotics unit, a special investigations. We didn't have canines. We didn't have anything. Everybody was an officer, various ranks, sergeant, corporal, chief. So unfortunately, even being a new officer, six months, a year out of the state police academy, if it was your shift and you had something happen, whether you were inexperienced or not, it was your call. So towards the end, I kind of approached that conversation with my chief and said, maybe we should have a specialized unit. And she said, you know, the city council will never go for it. I don't think we can make that happen. But they did try to reassign calls to more senior officers because this was a really big challenge. I mean, thinking about being a law enforcement officer six months out of the academy and you get your first drug case or your first homicide, your first major crime where it's going to be a felony and you've never done a felony report before. And you didn't have somebody standing beside you that can say, here, let me walk you through it and show you how to do this. You pretty much had to call somebody when they were off duty and talk to over the phone and say, I got this call and I've been on the road for six months. I don't know how to handle this. 
That's a little bit. So that different. was very much a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because that, I know me spoiled coming from a, a, a slightly larger market. You know, when I left, I think we were offer, authorized for six hundred and fifty sworn people and had specialization. I mean, it. It mm-hmm. uh, once you were in your swim lane, you stayed in your swim lane, and somebody else came in with right. the parts that mattered. So. Yeah. So with our big. With our victim, Bobby Jean, had you heard this name before, before this call came out? Were you were you accustomed to knowing her? So I actually had not. Her residence was out in the county, and my brother was actually a deputy sheriff in the same county. So he was a county deputy. I was a city cop. Um, and I even called him and said, you know, are you familiar with this individual? And, and uh, in West Virginia, it is Blacka. The last name Blacka is a common name. We do have a lot of Blackas. She was related to some of the Blackas that I had interacted with that I knew from prior experience, but I had never came across her. And my brother was not familiar with her either. So that, again, that, that gave a lot of credibility towards her mom saying, you know, that she was staying out of trouble and she was kind of, you know, getting away from the drug life and, and was taking care of her kids and her family before this this tragic incident actually happened. So she had previously been involved with drugs and had issues right. and was in the in efforts of straightening herself up. So when did this call go out? Were you just working your standard seven to seven and you just got a dispatch call? Yeah. So actually, I was like 6.50 in the morning and bef- I was still getting my uniform on because I was only about 10 minutes, five minutes away from the police department and I'm getting dressed for work and my cell phone rings and it's the police department. And they said, hey, you know, you have a brand new officer that's only been on the road for seven months and he's on the scene of a heroin overdose and the person's dead. They're deceased. He is right now has the scene under control. He has crime scene tape up. The scene is blocked off. He's doing, um, you know, kind of incident command waiting on you to get there. And he really wants you to take over this case, even though it happened on his shift, he wants you to take it because you're a senior officer and you've had experience doing these these type of incidents before. So the call came out around 6.30 a.m. and it actually happened on night shift's watch, but they referred me to the call because I had a lot more experience than the new officer did at that point. So answering the phone, I said, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of getting dressed. Give me just a few more minutes. I'll be dressed and I'll be out the door. I'll head straight to the scene. The call actually came out at an apartment complex that all of us at the police department were very familiar with. It was low-income housing. We did have a ton of issues there from weapons offenses, drug cases, domestic cases. A lot of our, our bad guys in the community that normally had warrants, that's the first place we would go when a felony warrant come out, caught off the press. We would go up to this this apartment complex and we would start looking around for this individual. So as soon as the call came out at this apartment complex, I already knew the type of environment that I was heading into. And that was where Bobby Jean lived or was she just staying there with friends? That was where she was deceased and she was at the, the apartment of, of one of her friends. It was not where she resided. So you got there and you go through the mm-hmm. tape and what happens? Mm-hmm. So I go there, the new officer was, you know, hey, I didn't touch anything. Uh, I, this is really new to me. I walked into the bedroom. I did see the body laying on her back, which is a supine position, which is commonly referred to in the EMS the law enforcement world. We call it a supine position when someone's laying on their back. She was in a supine position. I didn't even touch the body. I didn't even look for evidence. I kind of knew this was outside of my scope of things. And I, I, I left the rest up to you. I come out here and ran some crime scene tape and made sure nobody entered the crime, crime scene until you got here. So I go through and start doing our standard protocol. Um, You know, I went ahead and told dispatch to call EMS and let them know there would be a body removal, but I did not want them to come to my scene um, because it hadn't been processed yet. And normally when the paramedics and EMTs come, that just creates a a forensic nightmare um, to have people walking through your crime scene and and, and dropping things and, and contaminating the scene. Nothing against fire and EMS, but I just needed to conduct my investigation before contacting other people. In our county, in our jurisdiction, we only had one medical examiner that was in the whole entire county. 
his primary responsibility was he ran an ambulance transport company that was outside of our hospital. Um, and that was his primary job. And he kind of just did the medical examiner thing on, on the side. It wasn't really a full-time role. So a lot of times we would have to call him and he might be on the ambulance and we would explain to him what type of crime scene we have. And he would make the determination if he would have to leave work and come in and do his, his medical examiner thing, or if he left it up to us and we would just be taking the body to a funeral home or to the hospital and we'd be transferring custody for an autopsy. When you arrived there, was anyone else with Bobby Jean or was it just her in that apartment? So she was by herself. The call for 911 actually came in by the leaseholder of the apartment complex. Her name was Daisy. And she calls in and says, um, you know, I, I left my residence. I let a friend of mine stay there overnight. And when I walked in this morning, I walked into the bedroom and she was on the floor, unconscious, unresponsive. I think she's dead. And when we got there, even the leaseholder of the apartment, com- the apartment, Daisy, she wasn't even on the scene. She had left. So she called 911 and then just left and closed the door and, and left the body in there. So nobody was on the scene that we could identify as a potential witness. Nobody could tell us what happened. It was just me, the rookie officer, and the decedent, the, the deceased person. Did the leaseholder Daisy know Bobby Jean did, or did she even didn't have a clue who she was? At that point in time, I did not know because the only information that was given from dispatch was exactly what I said. She just said uh, she's unconscious, unresponsive. I think she's dead. She's a friend of mine and I let her stay the night in my house and I come home this morning and found her dead in my bedroom. Um, So we kind of knew that they were friends. We just didn't know the extent of who was in the house. Were they partying? Was she alone? I mean, we kind of didn't know what was going on at all. There was a lot of pieces to the puzzle that needed to be filled in at that point because we were just going into a blank canvas. So she at least notified you of the victim's name. She knew who she was. And I know oftentimes with a lot of the cases that we hear from or talk about, sometimes those victims, they aren't even identified initially. And that really complicates things because you have a an unidentified person. So you knew at least who Bobby Jean was and Daisy backed out and turned it over to you pretty much. Right, right. So at that point, where did it take you in your investigation to begin knowing what happened? I mean, I'm assuming you knew it was an overdose, but where do you go from there? So at that point in time, just looking at my initial, you know, scene results, I always like to approach the scene holistically. You know, I like to do a thorough walkthrough. We knew the body wasn't going anywhere. Um, you know, so a lot, a lot of officers have that tendency to run straight, straight to the body and start processing the body. My preference is, and of course, to each their own, everybody does it a little bit differently. I knew the body was in there. I knew the crime scene was secure. I started walking throughout the apartment, obviously not violating any type of Fourth Amendment search and seizure laws. I wasn't searching for anything, but I did want to walk through the kitchen. I'm looking at pictures on the refrigerator. I'm looking at anything that might be in plain view on the kitchen countertops within, you know, the, the living room, the bedroom room. And whenever I finally do my walkthrough and make my way into the bedroom, I did see Bobby Jean's wallet that was laying on the bed that did have her West Virginia driver's license in it. So although we got the name Bobby Jean Black, uh, uh, where I'm from in West Virginia, Bobby Jean, Billy Joe, Bobby Joe, those names are a lot of times nicknames. Um, So I didn't want to say that, hey, that's her government name and start trying to pull paperwork on her through our dispatch center. But once I was able to get her West Virginia driver's license, I was really able to go through and say, you know, give me a, a criminal history print out on this individual, look in our police reporting system, call the county, find out well, everything that we know about this girl. You know, Can we have next to kin? Do we have any associates, any family members? Um, and we really started doing some research kind of to get down to the bottom of the history of our victim because nobody was there to fill those parts in for us. So that was kind of step one of where I was at with the investigation. So once the body is removed by the coroner, I'm assuming sometime later, you're continuing to process the scene. 
where as an investigator do you go next to even begin to piece this together of what happened, who was with her, any of the details of that of that particular crime? Right. So narrowing down my crime scene is I start out really, really big, and then I start to make my crime scene smaller. Once I get into the bedroom, now at this point, my focal point is very, very small. I'm talking about the bedroom and the body. It's kind of where we're at with things now. I'm able to look at the body and kind of just do a preliminary scan. I don't want to put hands on the body yet and move anything, but I start looking at the body doing a preliminary scan. Up above the left-hand eye, she has a big, a very, very large subdural hematoma just a huge bruise. It's basically a blood pocket. It's kind of letting you know like you've had some trauma. If you've ever caught a baseball to the eye or you bumped into your cousin while running and playing hide and go seek and you get that large blood vessel, you know, that blood pocket that kind of forms over your eye. She had that above her left hand eye. So now at this point in time, I'm thinking to myself, is this a homicide as in blunt force trauma? Did somebody beat her to death? You know, what do we have here? We have no other signs of like ligature marks around the neck. There's no other physical trauma on the body until I get down to her right arm. Her right arm, I do see an incision mark that is indicative of a hypodermic syringe, a needle, you know, with drug use. It's it's into her vein and her arm. And that's that's what I know to be consistent with, you know, a narcotic analgesic hypodermic syringe drug user. Made me believe that she had shot some heroin. Obviously, in my preliminary search around the house, I don't even want to call it a search, my scan, my scan around the house, you know, I don't see any syringes, I don't see any narcotics, I do not see anything in plain view that would lead me to believe that there was drugs on the scene, nothing around her body on her person. Um, again, I start searching the body at this point, And I notice that it's, it's on a carpeted bedroom. So I notice at this point, when I kneel down, and I start to get a closer look at the body, and I'm taking my photographs, I'm working my wide angle photographs, and I'm working my way in at this point in time, I'm photographing the body, I kneel down to get a certain angle on my photographs immediately around the corpse. And when I put my knee down to the carpet, my work pants is soaked. There's some type of fluid surrounding her body. Looking at decomposition, being an EMT, I was an EMT for a very long time before I was a police officer. Looking at the decomposition of her body, it was earlier stages decomp. I mean, I I could probably estimate she had been deceased for 12 to 14, 16 hours. A little bit of rigor mortis had started to set in where her body was starting to become naturally rigid and, and stiff to move her limbs and her outer extremities. But she was not so far deceased that I would believe that, you know, it was a loss of bowels or a a loss of, you know, her her bladder with, you know, she urinated because a lot of these wet marks were up by her head, up by her arm. It wasn't in an area where where you would find that the body, once it deceased, it lost all control of those involuntary functions. And a lot of times they will defecate or urinate post-mortem after they die. So it wasn't consistent with that. And I couldn't put my finger on it. So one thing, if I can throw out to someone who's processing crime scenes and looking at forensics or evidentiary collection, if you have any evidence technicians or anything on the call, or you're kind of new to this in law enforcement, you can never take enough photographs, burn up a million photographs on a crime scene, because you can't go back then and recreate that image. You can't go back and say, I I can't remember what was in the corner of that room. What was it? You cannot rely on memory at that point. So take as many photographs as, as, as what you possibly can. I photographed the room to the point where in one of the corners was an orange juice bottle. The, the apartment was trashed. It was a very, very dirty apartment. Trash all over the floor, clothes all over the floor, three fo- sinkfuls of dishes were overflowing with spaghetti sauce. I mean, it was just a very, very nasty apartment. So to see an orange juice bottle on the floor, if, if I went into a, a house that was clean, 
you would think that's kind of out of place. You know, this is a clean residence. Why do they have just a single orange juice bottle on the floor? And it wasn't even near like a trash can. It wasn't like someone tried to throw it in the kitchen trash can and missed and it, they forgot about it kind of thing. It was just in a weird location in the corner of a bedroom, um, isolated by itself. So I took a million photographs. Later on, we were able to determine through doing an interview with other people that were on the scene, when she um, had the, the heroin that went into her body, she became unconscious, unresponsive as a result of that overdose. One of the people that was with her said they heard from a friend of theirs, who's also a heroin user, that if you dump really, really cold water on somebody and you put ice packs on their groin down by the femoral artery, it brings them out of their heroin overdose state. And that's exactly what they did. They filled up that orange juice bottle with ice cold water and dumped it on her chest, her neck, her face, all up and down her body. They dosed her with it probably three or four times with cold water. And they put ice packs down inside of her pants on her groin. And later on, we found the Ziploc sandwich baggies underneath of her pants when we took her to the hospital and did the full body examination. So that was very much consistent with the interview questions that we got. Some of that weird stuff that's out there. It sounds like a scene from Pulp Fiction. You know, right. But there's right. but that's another sad thing about this whole dynamic when people get in this way is the nonsense that's out there and the time that's mm-hmm. wasted. With well, and I like think that. in an effort of desperation, you're willing to try anything, even if Bobby Joe down the street said it worked for Kenny when he OD'd. Um, right. And so I, I think that they just were probably reaching, grasping for anything they can can get. Mm-hmm. So when when Bobby Jean is taken and they find the Ziploc bags, what lead you next to learn of these stories and how do you learn of the suspects since Daisy didn't have a clue what was going on since she wasn't home or was Daisy even telling the truth? So exactly. That's, that's where we come into that investigations component where after being a cop for a long time, this is, this is a skill that a seasoned investigator would have that my rookie that had only been on the road for seven months wouldn't have had that ability to determine looking at it from my experience point to his experience point if I hadn't handled the case and I would have gave it to him, he probably would have took it on face value that this was a heroin-related overdose death. We're going to chalk it up as an unattended death, and we're going to call it a day, process the body, do a death investigation, and call it a day. I wanted to dig until I could put every piece of this story back together of what happened to this girl, and ultimately it led to me charging four people with murder. So that's the difference between an experienced experience investigator that knows how to dig, wants to dig, and wants to get down to the bottom of it versus a rookie cop who says, this is outside of my comfort zone. I want to handle this as fast as what I can, close the case, and get it off my desk and move on to something fun like going out and running traffic and writing tickets. Well, but I think also, even if a person was a rookie, you have to know if this is not Bobby Jean's residence and Daisy's claiming she don't know how this happened and... You have to know there's more to the story. How did how did Bobby Jean get into your residence and you weren't there? Who let her in? Who gave her the drugs? Where's yeah. the needles? So you have to know that yeah. lack of evidence, such as the syringes, there has to be more to it because there's pieces and parts missing. So you got to fill in those missing links to get your totality of your scenario of what happened. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And you would think that every cop would have that mindset, not talking negatively about law enforcement. I will always bleed blue. Those are my brothers and sisters. But there are some lazy cops that say this is outside of my comfort zone. I want to put this case to bed and wrap it up with the path of least resistance as easy as possible. It's a death investigation. I'm done. 
I've seen it in my jurisdiction. If there's other officers that are come from smaller jurisdictions, I'm sure that you will see that a lot. Um, I've had the chance to work for a smaller agency where I've seen a lot of those things and I'm shaking my head going, man, if this was my case, I would have took it a completely different direction. And then I came to New Bern, North Carolina, where like Dave said, we were slotted for 106 officers. So by no means, not an agency the size that Dave came from, but significantly a larger agency than my 12-person agency from what I was used to. Hey, you were, we did have- you were feeling like you were in New York City when you moved. I did. Absolutely. So for me, it was that big jump to say that we did have specialized units. We did have investigators that had specialties and things were handled uh, much differently in North Carolina than what they were in West Virginia. I had a much more positive experience. And that's what led me very quickly that I was only there for 10 months. I was actually one of the uh, only officers in the history of the department to be promoted to detective while I was still on probation wow. with the department because they were that impressed with my ability to dig and my investigative skills. And I had to explain to them, I know that I've never been a detective before, but in West Virginia, you have to be good at all of it because there's no detective coming to save you whenever you have a homicide. You're it. <laughs> so uh, I had to work all cases. It speaks to that hunger that you have to have. And uh, right. if that hunger is absent, then then it comes to that category you said where people aren't effective. And uh, that's what I like about our audience. Actually, the, the people that really listen to podcasts like this and the other ones in the true crime genre, they they have that hunger for that next question. And uh, that that whole thing of, of wanting that next piece or answer that that thing that is, is not making sense. And well, you know, I, I think because most people are our listeners, they think a lot like me, and they want to know, well, why didn't that rookie officer want to do this? How can you just close it out and go run traffic? You know there's more to well, this let's, story. Let's be careful, so, too, because like uh, Bobby was saying, we, we can't just limit it to, to people that are new on the job. Trust me. Oh, sure. I think it's every job. It's, it's not just yeah. policing. It's every some, job. You can have some people yeah. that have done this for years that – They've been there so long, you smell Ben Gay, and they keep their teeth in a mason jar. And right, and they retired. <laughs> My field training officer, actually, you know him, right? Exactly. <laughs> so. and, and you know, so that hunger goes to wow if they ever had it, but but they retire in place. So it's just one else. Yeah, and, and just just like you and Wendy were saying, I mean, you think about your personal experience, even to the listeners that are they're going to be listening to the podcast. Think about your experience where you've had a bad doctor, you've had a bad nurse, you had a bad teacher. Every profession has their bad apple. And law enforcement gets that bad rap because what, you know, out of, you know, 40 billion calls that are answered every year by law enforcement, one of us end up on YouTube or one ends up on, you know, a, a big major uh, mainstream media outlet. Um, you know, every profession has their bad apples, you know, but it's, it's law enforcement holding one another accountable you know, to be better. And that's kind of some of the stuff Dave and I were talking about before Wendy entered the room with some of that conceptual leadership and accountability. Um, you know, but uh, as a field training commander for the department, I always tried to hold our new officers and even our veteran officers to a higher standard to say, you know, we really need to increase our training program. These guys and girls do not have the tools that they need to come out here and be effective. And we, we need to change that. Uh, so a lot of those new officers that I had, they were underneath me as a field training commander. And they would call me a year, two, three later on the job and say, man, I got a question. I feel comfortable coming to you. And I don't know how to work this. I've never had a sexual assault before. I've never had this happen before. How do I go through this case? And I was happy to always take those calls because my brothers and sisters and my coworkers meant the world to me. And, and I wanted to see them succeed and not get themselves in hot water and still do justice by the victim and by the community in the same token. Well, and I think that leads a lot to, to your reputation with them, that they can reach out to you. And that's more preferred than someone not reaching out at all because they're embarrassed to ask or they're afraid of the backlash they're going to get because they should have already known that. And and mm-hmm. so it's it's always nice to have a mentor like that you can reach out to without criticism of 
how could you not have known that? You learned that in the academy or, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So moving on to our suspects, where did this case turn after Bobby Jean was picked up from the corner? Where do you start digging at that point? Do you go back to Daisy? Do you, where do you even take this? Because I know our listeners probably want to know what's, what's starting point A? Where do you go? See, that, that's really good that you bring this up because I'm kind of hoping we left them with a cliffhanger. You know, when we went off into left field, maybe they're going, hurry up and get back to the story. No, so, yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. tell us the good part. So this this is where, you know, the narrator is going to say that the plot twist kind of kind of come into play. Um, while I'm on the scene, still processing the crime scene, taking my photographs, uh, looking for evidence that I, I can see in plain view, processing the body, doing all those things. I'm on the phone with the medical examiner. Um, as I'm sure you can imagine, processing a homicide or a crime scene t- on this scale by yourself as a solo officer, because at this time, you got to think day shift started, night shift's over, my rookie's going home. Uh, So the night shift officer's going home, and I'm on the scene by myself. You know, the only thing I can do is close the door to the apartment that has crime scene tape on the outside of it, lock the door so nobody can sneak up on me, you know, while I'm I'm bent down dealing with the body and surprise me and take me off guard. No one can come in and tamper with my crime scene. All I can do is lock the door of the apartment complex and continue to process my crime scene completely alone without any backup, without any assistance, all by myself. So I'm in the point of processing the crime scene at this stage, and I hear a knock on the apartment door. I go out, check the peephole, don't know who it is. It's, it's a white female. I open up the door. She identifies herself as Daisy. She's the leaseholder of the apartment complex, the one who called 911. So I asked her, you know, don't you have your key to the apartment? And she said, well, yeah, I saw the crime scene tape and I wanted to be respectful and knock. So right off the bat, you know, I was able to develop that rapport with her. Uh, before you come in on the call, Dave and I talked a lot about developing that rapport with one another and being respectful in the community that you can win. You can get a lot further with, with a suspect, a criminal, whoever they are, by treating them with respect Absolutely. And, and being nasty with them. Um, so I was able to say, look, you know, I really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate you not keying the door and walking in, even though this is your apartment. You know, you gave me that respect to knock and let me know that you were out here and gave me a heads up. And I was able to get that rapport with her very quick by thanking her for being considerate of that. She very well, by all legal rights, she could have keyed the door and come into it. It was her apartment. I wasn't detaining her at that point. I mean, she had a legal right to come into that apartment and and surprise me, but she was respectful and didn't do that. So I made sure to thank her um, for doing that. So I bring her into the apartment complex. You know, at this time, I'm still processing the crime scene. And I explained to her, you know, I I do need you to stay here. Um, Unfortunately, I don't want you in here with me while I'm processing the body. And in this apartment complex that I'm telling you about, when they see the police pull up or the ambulance pulls up, literally everybody in this four-story apartment complex will come out of their room, get on the elevator, and come upstairs and stand outside of the crime scene. And we've had to push them back several times and, and push our get our, our, our incident scene even bigger and tape it off right at the elevator and say, do not cross this line. You need to stay back away from this apartment. We've had to vacate people from the apartments that have been next door to it parallel and say, you have to vacate your, your apartment. I don't want you out here in my crime scene. We're extended and out to the hallway or out to the elevator. And we've had to do that to push people back. So, you know, I told her, I don't want you in the hallway either because, you know, you're going to be out here talking to people and people are going to be asking you questions. And, and that really hinders the investigation as well. So can I get you just to sit in here on the couch, hang out? I'm going to get the body processed the rest of the way and, and get the, the body removed. I was able to call EMS, finish up my investigation rather quickly. She came in on the end of my investigation. I was just about to wrap up. And the EMS people come in, put the body on the stretcher, and they took her to the hospital and was holding the body there um, for me to come up and continue my, my investigation. 
at this point in time, I was able to sit down with Daisy and do a non-custodial. That basically just means she wasn't lawfully detained. She wasn't under arrest. You know, I explained to her, gave her her Miranda rights anyways, just in case she said anything that was incriminating. I read her her Miranda rights, told her she was not in custody. She was not detained. She was free to leave at any point in time. We talked about all these things, and she gives me an initial statement, which she gave me in her own handwriting. I didn't have my audio recorder on me at that time. She gave me a handwritten statement. Throughout the statement, I could pick up on body language. I could pick up signs of, of, you know, deception. She was definitely not being truthful with me on a lot of things. But again, you know, people like to refer back to these cop shows where it's, you know, um, we're, we're going to force a confession out of you. Now, obviously, that, f- that confession has to be given freely and voluntarily. You know, she waved her right, right to legal counsel and said, no, I feel comfortable talking to you and I'll be honest and truthful. But everything that she was showing me throughout that interview led me to believe she was lying. She was, in fact, not being truthful. Anyways, I lock her down. I lock her into that initial statement where she tells me, um, you know, there was a couple of us in the house. We were kind of partying. Um, Bobby Jean went into the room. We don't know what happened. We walked in and we saw her like that. We thought she hit her head on something. And, you know, she was breathing. She had a pulse at the time. One of the girls that was here was a former certified nursing assistant. She checked her pulse. She had a pulse. She was breathing. We thought she just bumped herself on the noggin. Um, The way she was laying, we figured she fell off the bed, went forward and bumped her head on my entertainment stand. And we just, we knew she was fine. We went and stayed at a different friend's house that was partying somewhere else. And we come back and I come back here myself and, and she was deceased. That was the story, the gist of the story that I initially got locked down into a handwritten statement with her signature on it, waiver of her right to counsel, you know, all of those things. That's what she tells me. So, of course, being one of those inquisitive people like you were talking about earlier, Wendy, I'm asking her a bunch of supplemental follow-up question and answer, Q&A questions. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. What about this? What about that? She's doing gaze aversion. She's looking at the floor, looking at the ceiling, looking away from me, breaking eye contact. Um, uh, uh kind of like searching for the answers. Like you can tell somebody's obviously making up what is about to come out of their mouth. She's just um, telling me things that don't make sense. You know, things aren't adding up. The pieces of this puzzle um, aren't coming together. This is the first time that I really learn about the orange juice and the water and the cold packs. I said, so can you explain to me what's on the floor? Was she consuming alcohol? Did she spill liquor? It doesn't really have that alcohol smell. And she goes, no, we were dumping water on her because the girl that was a CNA said that would bring her out of her state if, if she shot up heroin. So she tells me she fell forward and hit her head. This is where the heroin comes in. And I said, well, wait a minute. You never mentioned anything about heroin. I didn't find any needles. I didn't find any heroin. I didn't find a typical heroin kit, which results in some type of a rope or a belt or, you know, a rubber band that they would use as a tourniquet. I didn't find a spoon with a cotton swab in it that had burn marks on the bottom. You're telling me about this. What if she overdosed on heroin? And this is the first time I'm learning about this. And she said, well, the girl that was the CNA, she collected the needles and the heroin and the spoon and stuff. And we we left the scene because she didn't want, you know, the cops to find it. So if she was okay and she was conscious, alert, and breathing at the time that you left, why would the cops have a reason to show up at your residence? So all these kind of questions start coming into play, and you can tell she's being very deceitful with the statement that she's given. Yeah, it just wasn't adding up. But when you let her know that you knew it wasn't adding up, did her demeanor change? Did her story change? Absolutely. There, it, it came into the point then that it was, you know, I, I was kind of drunk last night. I was using drugs myself. I was high. <clears throat> I can't really remember. I didn't see that. It's what I heard from somebody else at the party. They said this. They said that. Um, and kind of what we, we kind of learned at that point is, is really our suspect identification kind of takes shape and starts to form at that point. Um, she lets me know that there were, I believe there was four people total plus the victim. So there was a male at the party. His name was John Henry Davis the third. We had a female, Christina Nicole Pierce. Daisy was there. 
And we have uh, Melissa May Stewart, and then we also have the victim, Bobby Jean Blacka. So we start to learn that there was five people total at this this party. You had four females and one male that was at this this party. So I really start to ask Daisy more and more questions, and that's when she kind of she shuts down. She knows at that point she's you know I have her. I know she's lying. She knows she can't lie her way out of it, and she's getting twisted up in her lies. So she immediately shuts down and just says, "You know what? I'm I'm feeling really tired. I only had like an hour or two of sleep last night. I was really wasted at the party. Can we just do this another time? I have no reason to take her into custody or detain her. I can't force a confession out of her. So I say, sure. I leave her with that really good rapport. I really want to thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. Of course, you know, we want to get down to the bottom of this. Bobby has a family. This is very tragic. We want to solve this case. And I really, really need your help. So here's what I need you to do. Get some sleep for me. And then I want to come back later on this afternoon. And I want to talk to you and do a follow-up interview once you feel like you're well-rested and you get a chance to reflect on some things. She agrees to do that. She's going to meet with me again. She still decides she doesn't want to lawyer up um, and invoke her right to legal counsel. So I start going and trying to dig and find all of these other people that are involved with this case. John, the male, actually has a residence. It's in my jurisdiction. I go to the house. I'm doing a knock and talk. Nobody's answering the door. I don't know if he's in there. I don't know where he's at. Um, I start calling all the phone numbers that are on file for all these people. They're either disconnected, no longer in service, or they're not answering the phone. Some of the other people live in the county. One of the girls actually lived two counties away. I can't go there. It's outside my jurisdiction, and I'm in the middle of working a death investigation. I'm the only officer in the city. I'm a little bit tied up. So at this point in time, I'm not able to get in touch with anybody else that's identified as being at this party. Go back up to the hospital, finish processing the body, um, finish talking to the medical examiner. He advises at this point that he does want to send the body out for an autopsy, um, but he wants to really get down to the bottom of what this injury is above her, her eye. He wants to see if it was actually like a cranial fracture, if the orbital bone around her eye socket had been collapsed to let us know if there was like other foul play. It was a blunt force trauma where she had a head injury um, type deal. And he also wants to do a toxicology. He wants to draw blood and see if the, the levels of heroin in her body were lethal enough that it would have caused her to die. He wanted to see if there were any other drugs that were on board in her system. Um, and I cannot remember what the toxicology come back, if there were other things. I do know that there was marijuana in her system. And I do know that later on, the levels of heroin that was found in her blood draw was lethal enough that it would have constituted her dying from a heroin overdose. Did the hematoma ever surface as to what it was, or did she truly just hit the entertainment center? It absolutely did. Um, so I'm able to, to go about doing all my investigated uh, practices that I, I'm, I'm going just n- room, uh, routine, normal police work at this point throughout my shift. Um, later on in the day, Daisy actually contacts me. I don't have to reach out back to her. She contacts the police department and says, hey, Corporal McComb wanted to talk. Um, I'm awake now. I'm good. I'd like to talk to him if he wants to come back up and, and do another interview. Hey, you know, there's more to the story. So go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which has closed captions available for those that are hearing impaired. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends.
Lock it down, Judy.